The following message is from Bear Creek Church. More information about BCC is available at bearcreekchurch.org. Well, what a great start to our morning. Great time of worship in, uh, in a variety of ways. To uh, see the Snellings and hear about their trip. Uh, to, to feel like partners in the gospel for that, to, to dine at the Lord's table, to sing great songs. I have to say, whenever I hear that word Ebenezer, I always think of Pastor Dale, who would be so concerned that we know what that weird word means. It means like a monument. So, you've heard it before. Well, we're in Acts 15. And there's a, you know, there's a right definition of the gospel that's clarified by this Jerusalem council in Acts 15. The Jewish Christians, there were these Jewish Christians, right, in Acts 15 who insisted that they're hearing about Gentiles coming to Christ. So they're insisting that these Gentile Christians, they need to be circumcised, they need to... They need to become Jews. And thankfully, this argument did not win the day. And the conclusion stated by James was, we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. And we read this and we think, well, obviously. This seems obvious to us. Of course we don't have to become Jews in order to become Christians. It doesn't, doesn't seem like a very big deal. But it is. It's a big deal because it gets to the heart of the gospel and what it means to be saved. So it seems so clear, but then James keeps talking and goes on to give four requirements. It's as if he says, no, 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 let's not burden them by requiring one thing. But how about we require four things? And then Paul, who was so insistent, says, yes, I agree. I'd be happy to deliver that letter. And we, at first glance, think, what? I, I thought this was solved. Why are you doing this? And, and then when they get to Antioch, and they read this letter requiring four things instead of a protest. We read that they rejoice and they're encouraged. And again, we think, huh? What? It's a little confusing. Last week, we said that it's, it's Christ alone who saves. It's not Jesus plus circumcision. Not Jesus plus keeping the law. Acts 15, it's a... It's a critical battle in church history to define the gospel, one that continues throughout our history, one that was at the heart of the 16th century Protestant Reformation. It's the issue that sets us apart from every religion and every cult that wants to add works to grace. So when the Mormon comes to your door and uses words like grace and faith and says, Jesus died on the cross to forgive us of our sins, you shouldn't think, wait a minute, that sounds like they're Christians. 
No. Don't be confused because the difference has to do with the cry of the Reformation that's boiled down to the word, the little word sola. Sola or alone. Sola gratia. Sola fide. Solus Christus. It's not simply grace, but grace alone. It's not simply faith, but faith alone. It's it's Christ alone. It's not we it's not by adding baptism or indulgences or confessions or good works that that earn us heaven. No, it's Jesus plus nothing else. Believing in him is eternal life. This is Paul's argument that brought about this Jerusalem council in Acts 15. And it's what he so adamantly wrote about in his letter to the Galatian churches saying, even if an angel, maybe one named Moroni, even if an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be Accursed. Serious business. The argument, this argument in at the Jerusalem Council, the, uh, it's clear in verse 1. The Jewish Christians were insisting that and to, the, to this degree, they said, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, we believe you cannot be saved. They believed in Jesus. That he is the Messiah who died in order to save us. But now that these Gentiles are also coming to faith, well, they thought, it's necessary for them to be Jews. For them to keep the law of Moses, which would include the ceremonial laws, which is all summarized by saying they need to be circumcised. So the thinking, the thinking had to do Really, with a person's identity. Is our identity in Christ a matter of becoming a Jew? Do Gentiles need to become Jewish Jewish proselytes in order to be in Christ? Or are they in Christ through faith alone? Last week, the sermon title was was Jesus plus nothing. So I don't know if you were confused. It was only up there for a little bit, but today's sermon title is Jesus plus love. And you might be thinking, wait a minute, I thought it was Jesus plus nothing. Now you're saying Jesus plus love. Okay, it depends upon the sum of our equation. If it's salvation, then it's Jesus plus nothing. But the sum of today's sermon is Christian unity. So the equation includes love. It's, love is necessary. How are, these, how are these Jewish believers and Gentile believers, how are they going to have unity? It has to do with this letter and some recommendations. So let's, let's think through the Word of God together. And, and before we do so, let, join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we are, we are so incredibly blessed to have copies of the Bible. Might we stop at times and consider, consider life before the printing press or life in areas of the world that, 
that don't allow people to have your word. May we not take this for granted because each Sunday we are so blessed to gather and worship you and to read your word. Lord, cause us to be in awe of you and to love you even more, even more because of our time together in your word. We praise you for the spirit who is our helper, who reveals the truth of your word to us. And so we ask for his help this morning, that he would help me as I preach, that he would help each person listening to have ears to hear and hearts that apply the truth of your word for the sake of your glory. We pray, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you're able, please stand once again for the reading of God's Word. Follow along as I read Acts 15, uh, 19 to 35. So James, he concluded by saying, Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. Brothers, the, the brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. This is God's word. You may be seated. So, why is this letter encouraging? First of all, 
Well, it's encouraging that Judas and Silas were sent. Their presence, it communicates a personal connection. It's, it's always better to deliver a delicate or hard message in person, right? You know this. I've made the mistake. I'm sure you've made the mistake. Because, you know, it's just easier. It's less awkward to send a hard message by text or email. It's just easier. But when feelings can be hurt, when there can be potential for misunderstanding, it's so much better for the person to see your face and to hear your voice, to do it in person. So Judas and Silas are sent. It's, it's delivered in, in person. You know, there have been emails that I, that I thought, hey, this is good. It's clear. I'm being sensitive. I even have Jen check it out and make sure no blind spots before sending it. And then I send it and then I'm shocked at how the person misunderstood and how they were offended. And I wish I could go back and do it all over again. So there's one little lesson for us. You've heard it before, but it's so much better to have more difficult conversations face-to-face. Judas and Silas went, not only, to, not only to validate that it's not just Paul and Barnabas making something up here, that it's truly from the church in Jerusalem. But they went because it's delicate, it's important. It needs to be delivered in person. It's better. And if a message could be misunderstood, it seems like this might be one. Because Paul, he was so insistent, right? He he was so insistent that nothing be added to faith in Christ. And yet, this letter seems to require some things that are related to Jewish law and ceremony. So which is it, Paul? Is it Jesus plus nothing or Jesus plus requirements of the law? Because their conclusion about circumcision and the law, it it was so clearly no. It's not even mentioned here. It seems like these four requirements, they, they must be in a different category. And that Paul, of all people, that he would agree to this. And that it's received with rejoicing and encouragement. Clearly, something else is going on here. So what is it? Generally speaking, I think it has to do with love. It's Jesus plus love. It's it's salvation in Christ alone, which then produces, and yes, even requires us, to love. And love does not insist on its own way, but it causes us to bear with one another. And love was a big deal in the first century church because it was made up of Jew and Gentile, people who who definitely had some different ways of living. And so each side needed to bear with one another in these differences. There was a there's a lot of animosity. There was a lot of prejudice for them to overcome. And in Christ, they can love each other. 
the dividing walls of hostility can be torn down. It's the beauty of our faith. They, they really can be torn down. And this is something to rejoice about. They really can be brothers and sisters in Christ. Jew and Gentile. Amazing. We take that for granted. Love's a big deal. It's a requirement as those who are a part of the body of Christ. And it's Jesus who requires us to love. It's Jesus who answered the question about the greatest commandment saying, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And we know that the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. We need to love God and love our neighbor. It's related to the law of the Lord. And faith in Jesus would never undo this. It's a false dichotomy to pit Jesus against the law. Jesus made this clear by saying, Don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus came not only to die to pay the penalty for our sin, but to make us lawkeepers instead of lawbreakers. And loving the law means that we love the perfect holiness of God. The law describes the, the perfection required of us to be in God's presence. And breaking one aspect of the law means that we've broken it entirely, that we're lawbreakers. And all of us have done that. We are all law breakers. It's a burden that none of us have been able to keep. It reveals our sin. It reveals God's perfection. And it tells us we need a Savior. A Savior who's come to fulfill it for us so that we can be in the presence of a holy God. Jesus was born and he lived in perfect obedience to the law. He kept it. And so the doctrine of justification not only means it's just as if I've never sinned because the penalty of sin was paid for at the cross, but justification also means it's just as if I've perfectly kept God's law because Jesus did. And to have faith in him means that his righteousness, his perfect law-keeping is credited to our account. It's imputed to us when we have faith in him. Jesus fulfilled the law. He kept it for us. And this doesn't mean that we're now free to sin so that grace may abound, as Paul mentions. No, Paul tells us in Romans 6, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. 
Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but now under grace. We're not under law, but under grace. By God's grace, through faith in Jesus, we're law keepers. We're no longer under the burden of the law. There is therefore now no condemnation. We're no longer slaves of sin, but slaves of Christ. We are to live righteously in obedience to the moral law of God. Not as a burden but as those who are already free from its judgment. As those who love God and want to live in a way that pleases Him and is in line with what He tells us will be a blessing. There's a why to our lives. Why do I obey God's law? If you say it's in order to be saved then you misunderstand the gospel and you're trying to add, you're trying to contribute to the finished and sufficient work of Christ. But if you say, it's because as a child of God who is forgiven and eternally secure in Christ and his work on my behalf, because of this, now I truly love God. And because I love him, I want to obey him. And I want to love what he loves. And what he communicated in his law, it's right. It's pleasing to him. That's the different why. That's the different why that we should have. It's good news instead of a burden. It's it's why I think the Gentiles received this letter with rejoicing and encouragement instead of seeing it as as a burden. It wasn't a burden. The four things that are that they were to abstain from, it wasn't meant to, and they didn't receive it as Jesus plus obedience equals salvation. No, they received it as a way to love their Jewish brothers. It's Jesus plus love equals unity or fellowship. In verse 19, James concludes by saying, therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. It's clear that they understood the gospel as Jesus plus nothing. It's not Jesus plus the law. James says, let's not trouble these Gentiles by requiring that they do what none of us have been able to do. We shouldn't trouble them with keeping the law in order to be right with God. Because Jesus is the one who kept the law. That's how we're right with God. He fulfilled it in order to make us right with God. But notice that he describes these Gentiles as those who have turned to God. The last time we heard this phrase was in chapter 14 when Paul told, remember those pagan worshipers? Or worship, they're thinking Paul and Barnabas are gods and they're worshiping them. And, uh, and Paul tells them, we bring you good news. That you should turn from these vain things to the living God. 
I point this out because an important part of salvation involves turning from sin, turning from worthless gods that cannot satisfy us. And, and that may sound like a work, but it's not a work because turning to God means that we're turning from something else. Turning to God means I'm turning away from who I once was. We can't simultaneously walk in opposite directions. We need to turn or repent. So turning to God is having faith in Christ. It is repenting of our sins and trusting in the only Savior. It's important for us to know this because turning to God means that we once were a people living in and embracing sin. And now we're a people who live for God. Turning to God is repentance and faith. It's a change of direction. And so it will affect how we live in obedience to God. And this obedience, this obedience does not save us, but it is connected to a life that now loves God. Turning from disobedience to obedience. From sin and false gods who cannot satisfy us to the blessing of obeying the only true God who is our satisfaction forever. So the conclusion of of the Jerusalem council is don't trouble them with the burden of the law. Jesus has done this for us. And since they've turned to God, they need to remember that they've turned from who they once were. And this isn't to say that they turn into Jews and and get circumcised. But it does mean that they turn from their pagan practices. And turning from their pagan practices means that they should abstain from the things polluted by idols. And from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. Weird things mentioned here. There are a couple of ways for us to look at this. One involves repentance, that they should turn from pagan worship. And each of these four things had to do with pagan worship, their pagan temple practices. And the other way to look at this involves love and not wanting their Jewish brothers and sisters to stumble. First, having to do with repentance is the idea that Coming to Christ means we're, we're coming to a new identity in Him. It means that we're leaving a former identification with a life of sin. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The key sentence here is... And such were some of you. Such were some of you. 
the emphasis here and the problem that we're dealing with in Acts 15 has to do with identity. When you turn to God, you're turning from something. When you're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God, you have a new identity. You're in Christ. Your identity is in Him. And God views you as a, as a person robed in His righteousness, His perfect law-keeping. He doesn't see you as your former self. That's who you once were. But in Christ, that's not no longer who you are today. Repentance means turning from that former identity and turning to a new identity in Christ. And this identity is not Jew, it's not Gentile, it's Christ and Christ alone. Being in Christ tears down the dividing walls of Jew and Gentile, male or female, rich or poor. And obviously, we're still men, we're still women, and these early Christians were still Jews and Gentiles. But the point is that their primary identity, their, their unity and equal standing before God is only in Christ the Gentile didn't need to become a Jew. They were in Christ. But as those who are now in Christ, they needed to turn from their worthless idols because they've turned to Christ. It's like, it's like saying, this is who you are. So act like it. Put it into practice. If you're really in Christ, if you really love Him, then follow Him and obey Him. Abstain from these things that are associated with your pagan identity. Pagan temple feasts involved things polluted by idols. More specifically in verse 29, it's things sacrificed to idols. And even more specifically, it has to do with the other things mentioned, the Blood and things strangled. It involves, boil it down, it's meat. Meat that wasn't kosher because the animal was strangled and not drained of its blood properly. Pagan temple feasts, they, they also involved cult prostitutes and thus sexual immorality. So the requirements given in this letter are in one sense saying... Since you've turned to God, you need to remember to turn from your sinful pagan practices. You don't, you don't need to become Jews. You can be Gentile Christians. You just can't be pagan Christians. And they received this letter with joy and encouragement because this is how they understood it. Love God by embracing your new identity in Christ, by turning from who you once were as you turned to Him. And as members of His body, love your neighbor. Love your Jewish brothers who are especially sensitive to these kinds of things. And they might stumble over this. Love the Jewish Christian who's who spent a lifetime focused on ceremonial laws and kosher foods. It's not easy for them to overcome this. Think of the, also, think of the Jew who hasn't come to Christ. 
You don't want to live in a way that discourages their coming to Christ, do you? Remember, Moses and the law, it's still being proclaimed in the synagogues. So you need to be sensitive and love them by abstaining from these things. Okay, there's application for us, right? We need to remember that turning to God means turning from who we once were. It means our, our identity cannot be in a lifestyle of sin, but in Christ alone. Just as a person can't be a pagan Christian, likewise they can't be a sexually immoral Christian, or a Christian thief, or a greedy Christian, or a Christian drunk. There's a difference between there's a difference between a Christian who struggles and falls into these various areas of sin and someone who claims to be a Christian and doesn't struggle against sin but embraces these things as a lifestyle or an identity. I keep coming back to that word identity. Christians struggle with the things in this list. And struggling means that we, we keep turning. We keep repenting. We're walking in the wrong direction even as Christians and we repent and we keep coming back to Christ. And we do that over and over and over again throughout our entire lives. You know, someone recently asked me if I think a person who's gay can be a Christian. And I responded by asking, what do you mean by gay? And what I was getting at is the difference between someone who recognizes sin and struggles against it, same-sex attraction, knows that it's sin, struggles with it, continues to struggle with it. There's a difference between that and a person who says, that's just my identity. In other words, if a person says, I'm a gay Christian... And what they mean by this is that their identity is in being gay and that they embrace this as who they are instead of seeing it as a sin to repent of and struggle against, even if it's their entire lives. If they mean it's their identity, then no, there's no such thing. A person can't have two opposing identities. They can't simultaneously walk in opposite directions. There's a difference between struggling with a sin, against a sin, and embracing and identifying yourself with that sin. There's a difference. It's no different than a heterosexual person saying, I'm an adulterous Christian. It's who I am. It's what I want. So I'm just going to embrace this sin. I wouldn't even call it a sin. I'm just going to embrace this as my identity. And I've also turned to God through faith in Jesus. There's no such thing. He hasn't. Turning to God means turning from who you once were. A person can't embrace an identity of sin while claiming to be in Christ. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. 
There you have it. It's clear. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. All sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And as Christians, we struggle with all of those things. And if we confess our sin, he's faithful. God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's a big difference between struggling against sin as a Christian and calling yourself a Christian while embracing a contrary identity. So part of this letter to these Gentile believers was saying, you don't need to become a Jew, but you also can't continue being a pagan. And another related way to to understand what's going on in this letter is to see that some of the things mentioned here are not really sin. It's not really a matter of sin, but of love. What these four things have in common is their relationship to pagan worship. But at the same time, the only one that's explicitly sinful is sexual immorality. The other things, they have to do with meat being kosher and associated with idols. So if a Gentile wasn't no longer, no lo- turn from paganism, I'm no longer participating in those temple practices. They're not participating anymore. But then they, you know, they, they see a good deal on a ribeye that happened to come from the pagan temple. It's just meat. It's not sinful. Paul made this clear in Romans 14, saying, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. That's interesting, isn't it? The problem to avoid, the reason these Gentile believers were asked to abstain from meat offered to idols, it has to do with love. We also read in Romans 14 that one person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats for God has welcomed to love each other, bear with one another. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of baggage over food. But remember, God has said, it's clean. Don't call unclean what I call clean. The food is not sinful. And so the Gentiles, they're clean. Yet, the Jewish Christians, they have a lifetime of hearing Moses and the law and it tended to go against their conscience to eat non-kosher foods. They continue to struggle with this. And the answer to this problem isn't simply, well, get over it. I like those simple kinds of responses. Stop it. Get over it. It's not sin. Ah, but we have consciences. It's interesting how God works, isn't it? It doesn't go against conscience. Instead, he says, you know, here's a good opportunity for you to love one another. Bear with one another. 
We do this because some sin, it's just not, it's not black and white. Some sin is not black and white. Some sin, it's a matter of conscience. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats. In other words, if it goes against your conscience to eat that, and you go ahead and eat it anyway, going in against your conscience, that's sinful for you. But if it's not against your conscience for another person and you eat it, it's not sinful. And this is interesting because just as God doesn't require Gentiles to become Jews, so God doesn't require Jews to become Gentiles. We're not robots, we're human. And God gives us a conscience and we, we should listen to it. And what we should avoid is judging another person according to our sensitivities or resenting what we perceive to be someone's weakness or being overly sensitive about something that we know not to be sin, but it goes against their conscience. We need to love each other. What we all have in common is our identity in Christ. We have Jesus and we need to add love. Instead of judging or resenting, we need to love one another. Acts 15 is is an interesting time in church history. As sensitive Jewish Christians are told not to judge their Gentile brothers, and Gentile Christians are told not to resent their Jewish brothers. Their histories and customs are different, and there needs to be love and appreciation instead of division. And it's funny because we, we could think, well, God's sovereign. He, can, he has power over the heart. He can, change, he can just zap them and it's not sin. But instead, he leaves people in these positions of history and conscience and says, I want these problems so that you'll learn to love one another. It's a beautiful victory for the church. There's there's full agreement that a person is justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There's, There's clarity over our identity in Christ and the need to turn from who we once were. And there's clarity over love and being sensitive and bearing with one another. And I'm sure, you know, we can think of some applications here, can't we? Involving things like alcohol or movies or politics or maybe even masks and vaccines and people's consciences and same thing. We need to not resent one another. We need to not judge one another. We need to bear with one another. We need to love one another. We're not all the same. Some people have different convictions, and and maybe they'll change. But in the meantime, we're brothers and sisters in Christ. Our identity in Christ, it's primary, it's more important. And as those who belong to Jesus for the sake of the unity of His church, we need to avoid judgmentalism and resentment. We need to bear with one another. We need to add love. Let's pray.
Father, just as there were problems and divisions at the start of your church, so there are many things that divide us today. So we need the truth of your word. It's as relevant today as it was in the first century. Lord, might we rejoice. Might we rejoice at such news. Might we be encouraged by the fact that our shared salvation by your grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, it's what, we, it's what binds us together. Might we rejoice over the fact that you've called us into a body, that though different, we're brothers and sisters. We're brothers and sisters in Christ who people who are indwelt by your spirit. And so there's every reason for us to love one another. Lord, convict us where we've been resentful or judgmental. Help us to bear with one another for the sake of your glory and your glory alone. We pray in the great, the wonderful name of Jesus.